This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at lionelracing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. 
Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, and welcome back to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, this is episode 10. We have made it into double digits. How about that, Jack? I never imagined anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) Episode 10. So, Steve, this week I'm going to share the first of a three-part interview that I did with Ned Jarrett. And, Steve, I got to tell you, Ned is probably one of my favorite people in this sport simply because of who he is as a person. Gentleman Ned, yeah, yeah, that nickname is spot on. Absolutely. Uh, For Ned, what I know about his driving career was he wasn't the... uh, fiery type of competitor. I I think he was involved in very few controversies that that we ever heard of, and it reflected in his personality. You know, Gentleman Ned is is a perfect name for him because, to be a bit corny here, a pleasant man. That's all there is to it, a real pleasant individual to be around to work with him for a long time, So, uh, and I really enjoyed that. But as far as his racing goes, you never heard of any kind of major incident involving Ned. Oh, Steve, you teed me up on that one. <laughs> Just wait until you hear this interview because he has a, quite the recollection about a run-in that he had with Richard Petty. Oh, oh well, I'll confess to you, Ned was a little <laughs> before my time. But if he has a run-in with Richard Petty, now can you imagine any two drivers you could name that would really never be involved in any kind of major incident would be Gentleman Ned and Richard Petty, of course. Oh, just wait until you hear this, Ah, bub. Uh, You're in for a treat. (laughs) So that interview is going to be coming up in just a second. But before we get to that, we got to give away a prize. Oh, we got to give away. (laughs) We got to give away a copy of Brock Beard's book. Hey, say that three times fast. Yeah. Brock Beard's book, J.D., what we're going to do right now is we're going to pick this winner. All right, drum roll, please. Here we go. <laughs> the winner is Big Ben 421 with the name SVC Grad's Dad. Ooh, there's a hound. I so, that. Congratulations, Big Ben 421. I'll send you a message and we'll get your book on the way. Enjoy it, Big Ben. You know, you don't reckon that's Ben White, do you? Uh, He's always looking for free stuff. Well, you got Ben pretty good with that one. (laughs) But I don't reckon it is Ben White. So, Ben White, if you're out there, (laughs) your book's waiting on you. (laughs) So, Brock, take it away. (laughs) 
On the afternoon of August 11, 1991, J.D. McDuffie lost his life in a crash at Watkins Glen, but there was more to the man than that moment, and more to that moment than is widely known. I'm Brock Beard, author of J.D. The Life and Death of a Forgotten NASCAR Legend. For nearly two decades, I've been collecting stories never before heard and photographs never before seen to share the life of a man who must never be forgotten. And now, thanks to Waldorf Publishing, that story can finally be told. Featuring interviews with more than 30 people, including his wife Ima Jean, his daughter Linda, Richard Petty, and Ned Jarrett, to name a few, my book offers a rare glimpse into a world of racing not often seen, the world of the underdog, the blue-collar racer, a man who over 653 starts earned the respect of his peers and the enthusiasm of his devoted fans. 27 years after McDuffie's passing, it is my privilege to announce that J.D., the life and death of a forgotten NASCAR legend, is now on sale at Walt WaldorfPublishing.com, Amazon, and other online retailers. For more information, check out my website at lastcar.info. That's L-A-S-T-C-A-R.info. I'd like to start by asking about how you got started in your racing career. I read a story on the internet where your dad didn't want you to race. And so you actually raced under somebody else's name. When they started building the Hickory Speedway, which was uh, about 12 miles from where I grew up, it was a big thing in the community because there were not many forms of entertainment in the area. It had a couple of movie theaters, but that was about it, and high school sports. And when they started building the Speedway, you go down to the country store, on a rainy day when you couldn't work on the farm or at the sawmill. And those farmers and sawmills would be sitting around there, and that subject would come up. They're building that racetrack up there, and they said, boy, I'm a, when they get that thing built, I'm going to go up there and show them how to drive. <laughs> well, I, deep down, I said, I, I didn't tell them, but I, I said, I, I'm going to do that. I, I, yeah. I want to drive on that, that racetrack. And uh, so I worked it out to where the first race that was run there, I had bought half interest in a car and as a matter of fact that came through uh we were trying to get up a poker game one day when it was raining and we couldn't work <laughs> outside and uh we needed another player or two and went down to one of the country stores and a friend of mine john lentz was there and and uh i said john how about come playing cards with us he said well i'd love to but i don't have any money he said i've got half interest in that race car uh, that i need to sell and if I could sell that, he said, uh, I could uh, I could play. I said, how much is it? He said, $100. I said, okay, I'll uh, I'll buy it. And that was a lot of money back then because this would have been in 1952. And But I I had the money, and I paid him. And so he came and played, played cards with us that day. So I That was high stakes poker, wasn't it? Well, <laughs> we were playing for about a dollar, I think, limit or something like that. But uh, anyway, I, I won almost enough that day to, to pay for the— for the car, and so so <laughs> since I owned half interest in it, well, then I got to drive it. And but after I drove that first race, I did all of this without talking it over with my dad. And even though I was twenty years old at the time, and and uh, should have been pretty well on my own, but I respected him so much uh, that uh, I didn't want to to do things that he didn't want me to do. So he came to me. the The first race was on a Sunday. And the next Sunday, they were having another race. And he came to me on Saturday and said, we need to talk. And I knew what he wanted. <laughs> and uh, he said, I understand your interest in the cars. 
don't blame you for even wanting to drive, but he said, when you look at the people that you're going to be racing against, he said, they don't have a very good reputation because yeah. most of the drivers back then were bootleggers. And so he didn't want me to get that type of an image because everybody thought that all those race drivers were bootleggers. And he explained to me how important my role was in the lumber business. By that time, it had graduated from a sawmill to a planing mill, and we were uh, hauling lumber up into West Virginia and Ohio. And, and so the business was growing. I had two brothers older than I that had finished high school, and they were in the business as well. And I was the bookkeeper. We were buying lumber off of other uh, sawmillers, and I was the person that counted the lumber when it w came in and when it went out and, and did the bookkeeping and, and office manager, basically. And although I could do the physical work out there, too, when I needed to, but uh, I understood where he was coming from, and uh, he worked awfully hard to try to build respect in the community for our family, and he had done a good job at it, and uh, I didn't want to do anything to harm that. So, my partner, John Lentz, drove the car. He'd been a former motorcycle racer, and so he drove the car for six or eight races. And, and then one night, they'd switched to night races, and he got sick and didn't feel like driving. And we didn't look too hard for another driver. And, the, of course, the track was not very well lit, especially in the infield. We figured we could go out in the infield, change shirts, and come out, uh, me come out with the helmet on. We both had big noses, so you, we figured nobody would know the difference, and they didn't. So I, I drove the car and finished second. Well, that's the best that we had done as a team. And so we figured, well, I must be the best race driver, so uh, we'd just keep on doing that. We got by with it that night, and so we, I drove it for a number of races and finally lucked up and won a race. And then uh -oh. it got back to my dad. And uh, so he came to me one day and he said, okay, he said, if you're so determined to drive one of those things, he said, I want you to use your own name and get right. credit for any accomplishments that you may have along the way. And uh, so he became my biggest fan as time went by. Now, you were racing under your partner's name? I was racing under the name of John Lentz at that time. And uh, won, won a couple of races. Well, I guess we just won, won the one race in the Sportsman Series. So so uh, it didn't really take away that much as far as any wins. Cause I don't even know how many races I won in the Sportsman Series to begin with. <laughs> I probably won uh, upwards of 300, somewhere along the way, over a, about a six-and-a-half-year period. And I got into it just basically to uh, have some fun, the challenge. Mm-hmm. Of it, have some fun on the weekend, never dreaming that it might uh, turn into a career along the way because there really wasn't that much money in it. And uh, so we did the sportsman thing for six and a half years and managed to win the championship a couple of times in 57 and 58, finished second to Ralph Earnhardt in 1956. And we uh, still didn't look at it as a career. Mm -hmm. uh, I still was working at the lumber yard. Yeah. And working a full schedule and sometimes running six, seven times a week. And uh, that was taxing. There was no question about that. But but I, I loved it and just wanted to, to do it. And every once in a while, I'd get an opportunity or would create an opportunity to, to run in a Grand National race. Right. And uh, so I'd, I'd never had been out looking for sponsorship because there really were not that many sponsors to be had back then anyway. Uh, but uh, I, after we won the championship in 1958, I decided that it was time to either move on or get out of the sport because right. I'd, 
I had accomplished, not meaning to boast, but just about everything that that series had to offer. And so I started looking around for a ride in the Grand National and thought after I had won those couple of championships in the sportsman that they'd come knocking on my door, but it didn't work that way. <laughs> and so I had to go out and uh, start knocking on doors. And I found a 1957 Chevrolet that a guy that I had raced against, R.C. McDaniels, who had owned some cars that had raced at Hickory and some of the other tracks that I'd raced on in the Sportsman Series. And so he said I could drive it. It was a, it was a good car. It was a, a fast car. You could run up front with it, but it, it was not very durable. And But anyway, I drove that car for... Uh, a few months off and on, and uh, the last time that I drove it, we went to Greenville, South Carolina in the latter part of July of 1959 on a Friday night, and I was running up front, running in the top five, and the car broke again, and I was pretty disgusted, and my brother and a friend of mine by the name of John Tate were with me, and as we came back home, it was about a two-hour drive, and I said, guys, i got to change my my career or the way that I'm doing it or either just quit. They said, what are you going to do? Well, there was a 1957 Ford that was being maintained in my hometown of Newton, North Carolina by a former mechanic of mine, Bud Allman, and Junior Johnson was driving the car. <clears throat> and uh, they were building Junior a new Dodge to run in the Southern 500 at Darlington. And I don't know, I guess there had been Dodge cars that had raced uh, before that, I don't know if they had been or not, but anyway, they, <clears throat> this uh, the guy that owned it, Paul Spaulding from Syracuse, New York, uh, was going to sell this 57 Ford, and I knew it, and I said, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to buy that car tomorrow, and this was on a Friday night, and he wanted $2,000 for it. And there was a race at Myrtle Beach on a half a mile dirt track on Saturday night, and one at the old Charlotte Fairgrounds on Sunday afternoon, also a 100-mile race on a half-mile dirt track, and each of them paid $950 to win. And uh, they said, they knew I didn't have any money. They said, well, what are you going to buy it with? I said, I'll wait. That was back when the bank stayed open until noon on Saturday. And I said, I'll wait till the bank closes, and I'll give them a check, and I'll go down and I'll win <laughs> those two races, and that's $1,900, and you know, I can cover that check on Monday morning. And they did like you. They laughed. They said, you can't be serious. But I was. I was dead serious. Got home. I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. Went down the next morning, bargained for the car, got him to, to allow the, the, the crew chief and his helper, John Irvin, uh, to go along. And Bud Allman was the crew chief on it, to go with us to Myrtle Beach. Got, got them to loan me. The, see, the $2,000 was just for the car. And the four wheels that were on it. I mean, it was in. It was ready to race. Right. But uh, I needed, you know, tools and things like. I didn't have anything to go <laughs> racing with. And uh, so I got them to loan me everything that we needed to go racing that weekend. The the tow truck and and uh, everything, an extra set of tires and everything that I could get. And still got it for two thousand dollars. And I waited till the, the bank closed, and I said, I'm going to do it. And I Wrote them that check. We took off to Myrtle Beach. Got there too late to practice. and uh, But I had driven the car once before down at Columbia, South Carolina. And so I, I knew it, knew the car pretty well. Uh, we got we qualified eighth for the race, but after I got used to it, I got up battling for the front. And probably the hardest race I'd ever drove in my life. Uh, but I had a mission. I had something I had to do. Yeah. And uh, makes a difference. And <laughs> and so Bob, it came down to the end that Bob Welburn and I, Bob was driving Chevrolet and I was running his 57 Ford, and we were having a tremendous race, just swapping the lead sometimes one or two times a lap. And 
fortunately for me, as we came off of the fourth turn to get the white flag, I was in the lead. But I looked up in the rearview mirror, and and Welburn was headed towards the pits. He'd broken a wheel down, <laughs> and I was home free. We were over a half a lap ahead of, I think Lee Petty was running second uh, or third, and uh, he wound up, I think, running second. But anyway, uh, I went on and won the race. And then now, where was that again? That was at Myrtle Beach, Myrtle South Beach. Carolina. Yeah, and that was a Grand National. That event? That was a Grand National event. Okay. Yes, and uh, but our job was only half done, and uh, there's a little side story to that. I don't know how much oh, time we got. Keep here. going. And, uh, <laughs> uh, back then, the way that they built the steering wheels up so that you get good grip on them, uh, you know, the the steering wheels, the 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 grip was no more than the size of your thumb. And uh, what they would do was the racers would wrap uh, foam rubber around there and put electrician's tape around it to hold yeah. it on there. That would give you a good grip, a soft type of a grip. And, and also it would, was bigger so that your fingers wouldn't crimp right. and uh, go, go bad on you, really. <laughs> and uh, so they had just done that to the steering wheel. But I didn't know until the race started that whoever wrapped that electrician's tape around had wrapped it backwards. The <laughs> sharp edges that tape was oh. cutting on my hands. Oh wow! And at the end of that race, I could literally see the bones in the hand on my right hand. No kidding! It, it had just gone through the skin, through the meat down to the bone in my hand. It was bleeding, and uh, so and they had to put a tourniquet on my right arm to stop the blood flow. When did they really? In in uh, out on the racetrack, they didn't have a victory lane, so we got the trophy presentation made and, and that so we headed back to Charlotte and there was a little hospital at Conway South Carolina and that was on the way home and so I stopped there and they bandaged the thing up and put some antibiotics on it and you know to keep it from from uh, getting infested I guess and and anyway we went on to Charlotte worked the rest of the night on the race car and got it ready to go again and uh, I was a total wreck but we still the job had to be done yeah. and got out there and, and I was running in fourth place and Junior was driving a Wood Brothers car that day, Junior Johnson, and he blew the engine in it. And uh, so uh, before that, though, I had gotten out of the car and we'd put little Joe Weatherly in it because I just was a total wreck. Yeah. And Joe was running along about where I was, so it's still, we we're still in good condition. Well, it wasn't long after that until Junior blew the engine in the Wood Brothers car. Another caution came out, so came in and put Junior in the car. And he went back out. And of course, he is totally familiar with the, with the race car, and he won the race. Uh, I got the credit for it because I started it. The word had gotten around in the pits about the bad check, and Junior wouldn't take any money. Weatherly wouldn't take any money for it. And so uh, I had the whole $1,900 that I could take to the bank on Monday morning. Now, why did Joe get out of the car? First of all, Joe was a small guy. He he didn't he could hardly reach the pedals. Uh, it was difficult for him to drive the car, for, for one thing. And then Junior was familiar with the car. We felt that he could take it right back to the front and take it to the front because we was running along fourth and fifth place. And uh, and sure enough, he did. He took her to the front and won the race. Now, you won the championship in 1961, mm -hmm. and you had one win that year. Mm -hmm. You went from July to the last race in October with just one finish lower than eighth. At what point did you think to yourself, you know, I've got a shot at this thing? Well, of course, we... Didn't pay a lot of attention to the points, especially in the in the first half of the year, and uh, it got fairly late in the year before we started paying attention. Rex White was the guy that uh, I was battling with for the championship, and he'd won the championship in 1960. And as a matter of fact, I was running a Chevrolet in '61, and it was because of Rex White that I 
that I got a Chevrolet deal, a uh, little help under the table. And uh, so it's ironic that I went out and, and beat him because he had more trouble than I did. That's yeah. the only reason I beat him. It's not that I outran him that much, but, but we we did keep learning more about the car as time went on and, and what it took to make the car finish races, uh, engine primarily, because it, that was not a race engine. It was running a 409 cubic inch engine in those cars, and it was a truck engine. And uh, it was not built for any type of competition. So we had learned as the year went on. We had a lot of engine problems in the first part of the year. But we learned as we went on what we could do, the type of camshaft that we could run, how much compression we could run, and still expect that engine to be there in the car at the end of the race and still running. And so that's why we were able to get more consistent towards the end of the year. And when when we learned those things, started getting consistent, and Rex was having problems of various sorts. And, and so first thing we knew, we were there right with him. And so then we started paying a lot more of attention to it. And that was probably in the last quarter of the season. Now, you won the championship. And then, from what I understand, that's when you decided to go to the Dale Carnegie course. What did the course entail? The basic course is what I took. And uh, it will uh, give you self-confidence, for one thing. And uh, one of the main reasons that I took it to begin with was to uh, learn to speak and especially on my feet, uh, growing up on the farm, sawmill, we didn't have many opportunities to do that. Right. And and I, I didn't feel that I was in position to represent my sport and my family the way that I wanted to. And I vowed that I would win that championship again and that I would be better prepared the next time uh, to, uh, to be a champion. And so that's why I enrolled in the Dale Carnegie course uh, that's the best thing that I ever did because it opened so many doors for me. I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today <laughs> if I had not taken the, the Dale Carnegie course. Immediately after that, what few media members there were covering the sport would seek me out for interviews because I could talk. <laughs> I, I had learned how to yeah. talk through yeah. taking the course. And most of the drivers back then couldn't. I mean, you would not get a, a good interview. They'd say yes, no, and uh, maybe, or they, they just wouldn't say a whole lot. And right. so, boy, once they found somebody that could talk, I mean, they'd seek me out for interviews. Well, it got a lot of exposure that way, and that was not my purpose for doing it, but it, but it worked out. And then certainly after I retired from driving, then... Uh, I was invited immediately to sit on, in on some radio broadcast. Had I not taken the Dale Carnegie course, that, that would have never happened. And I would have never gotten into TV if, that, if I hadn't taken that course. Your nickname is, of course, Gentleman Ned. You couldn't be a gentleman on the racetrack. How hard was that for you? I know Jim Pascal was quoted several times. Yeah, they call him Gentleman Ned. He's a nice guy, but said, you get him on the backstretch of some of these tracks that are not too well lit. <laughs> and said, you'll see how much of a gentleman he is. And it it was an understanding, really, uh, among drivers that, that you had to rub and you had to hit people to, to be able to pass them. But you tried to do it as discreetly as possible and also try to do it so that it didn't take them out of the race. I always was very conscious of that and careful about it, uh, but still, I mean, it was fun to get in there and, and uh, rub fenders and, and bump somebody out of the way a little bit to, to make a pass and those kind of things because I expected it from them. You know, I was using the golden rule, and so it was, 
just something that was part of the game back then. And I don't know how the name stuck with me. I don't even know how I got it to begin with, but how it stuck with me because uh, most of my success came on the dirt tracks and on the short tracks. And uh, and you had to be pretty aggressive on the, that type of racing. I've seen a series of amazing photos in which Richard Petty is expressing his displeasure with you after a race at New Asheville Speedway. Yeah. I mean, he's got his fist balled up. Yeah. He looks like he's fixing to crawl yeah. in the car with yeah. you. Yeah. Do you remember anything about that, oh, that yeah. incident? Oh, yeah. I remember it very well. Uh, this was a payback. Okay. Uh, at Asheville. He had... Uh, I thought done me wrong at Winston-Salem at Bowman Gray Stadium okay. and uh, put me out of the race. And I I thought it could have been helped. And uh, I carried that for over a year. And uh, everybody had pretty well forgotten about it and thought I might have made a threat at that time that maybe I'd get him back. But uh, I, then it just died down and nobody, even my crew, thought <laughs> you know, they, they thought it was all over. But at, at Asheville, I had uh, been leading the race, and I cut down a tire and had to make an unscheduled stop, and I got over a lap behind and uh, had a fast enough car that I came back, made the lap up, and caught Richard. He was leading the race, caught him very near the end of the race, and uh, I didn't, didn't look for a whole lot of room to get by we were battling for the lead when I got taken out at Bowman Ray Stadium, and that's the way I wanted it to be when, when I paid it back. Uh, I would never have done it on a, a large track right. where, where there was uh, high speed involved. And so I, I caught him and knocked him out of the way and went on and won the race. And this was in the last five laps. And uh, I don't blame him for being mad. I don't blame him at all, but he and Maurice, they, they came after me. There was no, no question about that. And uh, I didn't get out. Of, I purposely didn't get out of the car. <laughs> I thought I was safer in there. <laughs> and so, uh, so I stayed in, and we never had a, another problem after that. Steve, one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is basically exactly what you talked about in the opening to this episode, because you had a perception of Ned Jarrett, as long as you've known him, you've had a perception of Ned Jarrett in his driving career. And in this interview, hopefully, maybe it might have added a little bit to your understanding of Ned Jarrett. Well, it did a little bit, because when you talk about uh, Gentleman Ned and you talk to Ned, you sort of get the notion that uh, might have been a great race driver, but maybe he was more, shall we say, um, uh, tactical than he was tough. Yeah, very laid back. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And uh, no, that is definitely not the case. Anybody who will get out there, first of all, and risk $2,000 to get into the sport, <laughs> to me, is not crazy necessarily, but it's a little bit tough and determined. And number two, to race with that hand getting all tore up like that and is is a sign that there is more to Ned than meets the eye. And one of the things that you don't realize when you do sit down and talk with him is, hey, this is a tough guy. No question about it. And let's not even get into the fact that he won a share of his first race car in a hand of poker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now he is crazy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> At least he won. That's true. That's true. Steve, you brought it up. 
the deal with the, well, for all intents and purposes, the hot check that he wrote for $2,000 to buy that first race car. What is it about the mentality of a race car driver that they would go to that kind of length to race? Uh, determination would be a word that I'd use, but another one would be competitive. Yeah. I firmly believe that every race driver out there, and especially every race driver who has raced to the top of their profession, has been a competitor who wants to win, who tries to win, and who attempts to win at all costs, I might add. So that's the type of... Uh, that's the type of man Ned, Ned was to do the things he did just to get into the sport. And I have a feeling that Ned knew that he had an ability to do well if he could just get in. And that is what I talk about competitiveness. I love the story where he basically has to go to these races and he has to win to be able to cover this check. And he goes to Myrtle Beach and wins the race. But he has the issue with the tape on the steering wheel. And Steve, it absolutely chewed his hands to pieces. Can you imagine that? I, I've never heard of anything like that. No. And and this was before the days of power steering. So it wasn't like he was just out there cruising. He was out there manhandling this race car with basically the bones in his hands showing. Do you need a better example of competitor than that? And do you need a better example of being hardcore than that? Absolutely. So he has that issue, goes and gets it fixed up, then goes to Charlotte. Right. And what's he going to do at Charlotte with his hands, two hands that are basically all but useless? Yeah. So he starts the race. Right. Joe Weatherly gets in. And of course, Joe being, you know, a little bit shorter than Ned, doesn't exactly fit in the seat. Right. Then he turns it over to... Junior Johnson. Johnson. Oh. So, yeah, I I think he turned it over to the right person. You can't get any more better uh, relief drivers than that, I would think. Well, that's three Hall of Famers right there. Yeah, absolutely. uh, That was an all-star cast right there. Absolutely. And the thing about it is that Junior and Joe did not take any money for what they did. They knew Ned's situation. At that time, they were probably at war a lot of times with each other and certainly there were battles on the racetrack but it was also a situation where they looked out for each other absolutely because those were what nascar let's call the pioneer days the sport was not sophisticated by any stretch of the imagination and the men who participated in it had the competitiveness i've already spoken about but they also had compassion because we're in this together guys and we got to look out for each other I loved that story, but I don't know that I loved it quite as much as I did the situation at, again, Asheville Weaverville Speedway. (laughs) What was it about Asheville Weaverville Speedway that brought out the worst in people? Hardcore, hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you can take the people out of the mountains, but you can't take the mountains out of the people. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So in this deal, Ned explained it very well in this interview. You know, he had been done dirty by Richard Petty at Bowman Gray. And if you're going to be done dirty by somebody, it's probably going to be at a place like Bowman Gray, the madhouse. Right. But Ned, I thought, went about it in a pretty cool way. He wasn't going to take his revenge out at a place like Atlanta or Daytona where Richard could get hurt. Right. But he did want to take him out of a win. And that's exactly what happened at Asheville Weaverville yeah, in this very ha- deal. It happened at a time when most everybody just forgot about what Richard did at Bowman Gray. But as Ned said, he got himself in a position 
to take the lead away from Richard, and inside of his mind, a little voice said, Aha, now's your chance. And uh, yeah, Ned admitted he bumped Richard, got him out of the way, and went on to win the race. Now, he had to expect, I think, some kind of confrontation. And in my way of thinking, uh, yeah, he should. But there's also the school of thought that Richard Petty is not going to be the kind of guy comes charging up to your car. Well, maybe Richard... Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Richard by himself. But the key here is that Maurice was with him. Now, Maurice was the firebrand of the Petty Clan. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like somebody once said to me that uh, about a story about Maurice, which is pretty cool, I think. Uh, Dale Lemon was the crew chief, and Maurice was called the engine builder. And uh, His nickname was Chief. Well, I'm standing in the pits one day in the petty area, and uh, I'm talking to Dale. And uh, I forgot the question. I asked him something along the lines of, you know, what's it like to run a petty team for your cousin? And uh, Dale says, I don't run the petty team. Huh? He says, I don't run the petty team. You'll find out who's in charge once Chief gets here. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? So, yeah. So yeah. Maurice being a part of the petty confrontation with Ned Jarrett doesn't surprise me at all. Steve, Kelly Crandall and I talked about the situation at Asheville Weaverville Speedway where the infield was taken hostage or whatever. The road was blocked out and they couldn't get out. And in that incident, a fan threw a rock at Richard Petty, hit Richard Petty in the head, and Richard Petty went over and, and decked the guy. And that's not the Richard Petty that we know today. And I think that this situation is not the Richard Petty that we know today. I think the important thing to remember, though, is Richard Petty was at his very essence a competitor. Exactly. And he cared very, very much about what he was doing at that time. Well, and also, it's the heat of battle. There's no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. It's the heat of battle. When you're in a tight, tense situation, your reasoning seems to go a little bit differently. (laughs) (laughs) I know we've all had that experience. I'm not saying you necessarily lose your temper, but I am saying you may do or say things that you normally wouldn't. And that's what happens to race drivers sometime in the heat of battle. Let's face it, they're only human beings. They react in different ways, and this is one of the ways they react. And I'm not overly surprised. Steve, I'm glad you mentioned the heat of the moment issue because in my employee review one year, you and I discussed a, let's call it an incident that I had with a coworker. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget what you told me. You told me, and I quote, you should have kicked his butt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, you should have, (laughs) the circumstances. And my response was, are you serious? And you said, yes, sir, you should have kicked his butt. And I said, well, I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you are provoked, you have to respond in some way. And that particular time was probably the right thing for you to do. So... I'm in the same boat as Richard Petty for once in my life. (laughs) Steve, the NASCAR circuit is headed back to Indy this week. So the logical choice was to go back for the issue of the week to August 11th, 1994, the Winston Cup Saint issue that covered the first Brickyard 400. 
And that was an amazing race for a lot of reasons. Number one, 85 drivers attempted to qualify. 85. 85. Among them, A.J. Ford, who made the field, by the way. Uh, but, uh, you know, 42 guys had to go home. And among them were Joe Rutman, Dick Trickle, and Randall LaJoy, and uh, uh, Herschel McGriff. They didn't make the race. But A.J. did, and of course, so did several other guys. Rick Mast won the pole. That was kind of a surprise. <laughs> he was driving. Yeah. He was driving for Richard Jackson at the time, and while they were a competent team, they weren't anybody's first choice to win a pole most anywhere. Hardly, and Indianapolis is among them. Steve, I've mentioned many times in this podcast, but one of the things I love about this Sane Vault project is going back through the pages of Grand National Sane, Winston Cup Sane, and seeing how things were shaken out at any given time during Mm -hmm. the sport. And back in the December 20th, 1979 issue, there was a story by Gene Granger, and the headline was, Probable Winston Cup Race for Indianapolis. And the body of the story said that this race was going to take place as early as 1981. Correct. There was a lot of political intrigue behind all that. Oh, do tell. Oh, yes. First of all, John Cooper was uh, the president of Indy at the time, and he had been with NASCAR for quite a while before he moved on. And, of course, Bill France Sr. was still in command of NASCAR and of Daytona International Speedway. Now, the city of Daytona at that particular time was asking itself, why don't we collect the taxes from Daytona Speedway, the property tax? Because they hadn't. They'd never done it. No No. kidding. Really? Wow. No, absolutely tax-free. Now, France hears about that, and the first thing he does is start rattling his sword. He's telling the Daytona politicians that he'll move Daytona somewhere else and or shut down the races before he'll pay what had to be sizable property taxes. Therefore, he initiates, with Cooper's cooperation, talks about moving a race to Indianapolis, if it came to that. That's where all this started from. And France was initially saying, I'll take the July race and move it up there if they don't, you know, go my way with this tax thing. And eventually, Daytona did come around to let France operate his track pretty much free of property taxes. So he never really got close to moving a race to Indianapolis, but he did threaten to do so. That's exactly my question. How serious do you think he was? Was he just trying to rattle Daytona's cage, or was he serious? Well, no, I think he was serious in having the intent. If it came to that, uh, certainly he would move a race and remove more money from Daytona's coffers by doing that. Moving it to Indy was a good idea, but I don't think that was ever going to come to pass, even with John Cooper's cooperation. Because Indianapolis still looked down its nose at NASCAR and the, the stock cars. They were called taxis by, by the Indy fan, you know, taxi cabs. And their snub of NASCAR began actually years ago. Bill France went to Indianapolis. was not allowed in the track. And he never forgot that. Of course, he should have known with Tony Holman being up there and uh, uh, his... His compassion for the Indy cars, you know, he just did not care to have anybody who offered something different, namely 
cars that looked like cars and not they weren't exotic and they weren't that fast compared to, to Indy cars have any access to his property. It was a, it was a snub, and that's when France came back to Daytona at that time and said, "I'll show you guys," and he started to build Daytona International Speedway. So the animosity at the time, if you want to call it animosity, between NASCAR and the IndyCars never really went away. And even though Cooper listened to the idea of having the race move up to Indy, unless things really fell apart in Daytona for Bill France Sr., that wasn't going to happen. Gene Granger actually talked to Bill France Sr., and he talked to John Cooper and both confirmed it. A lot of times when a reporter calls, you know, the people that they're interviewing are pretty cagey and, you know, hold their cards pretty close to the vest. But in this story, they both confirmed that it was a pretty serious deal and that it was, in fact, probable. Well, absolutely. Why? I mean, and I really think it was to them at that time something that could be probable. But Cooper had to know. In his talks with France, the problems France was having involving the, t- the taxes and uh, Daytona's desire to tax his property. He had to know. I mean, there's no reason that Cooper could not be told that situation because he'd ask Bill France, if I was Cooper, why, why are you talking to me? You know, you're just talking about moving the race? That's a very good idea, but what else? What's going on? So... Again, while the idea of a race being probable, I I admit both men were telling the truth that it was probable, but probable is uh, not uh, a fact. It's it's something that uh, could or could not happen. And as long as France was in a position to get what he wanted, he was going to make it happen. Uh, If he couldn't, well, maybe he would have moved that race. It's kind of fascinating to think about what might have taken place if that July Daytona race had, in fact, been moved. Because where would Richard Petty have won his 200th race at? Yeah, true. Absolutely. The change of racing history, particularly NASCAR history, that could have been made by an early transformation up to Indy, and including Indianapolis as part of this uh, circuit, we don't know exactly everything that might have happened, but... We do know that would have been a big change in history. One thing I want to point out, though, by the time NASCAR did go to Indianapolis in 1994, it had a nationwide popular product. It had the attention of the entire United States racing community. NASCAR was on top. Therefore, going to Indy was just a a matter of, of logistics at that time. But NASCAR was nowhere near that status in 1979, and I don't think it would have had nearly the impact in Indianapolis that it did in 1994. That's something to think about. What actually transpired to make it possible for Winston Cup to race at Indy? Was it simply the sport's popularity? No, it was a leadership change in Indianapolis. Tony George was pretty much in charge, and he was uh, a man with a a vision, I think, at that particular time. Uh, He realized that he needed to, if he could, uh, bring something else to Indianapolis uh, to make the racing there even better and to supplement the income for his track. And naturally, he turned to NASCAR. And he and Bill France started, Jr., Bill France Jr., started conversations long before the teams and Indy ever came to NASCAR in 1994. So 
those two got together and they plotted for, for quite a while before they announced the tire test in 1992. And everybody thought, tire test? My foot tire test. I'd say something <laughs> else, but, yeah. you know, it wasn't a tire test. It was to see how the NASCAR stock cars would perform at Indianapolis. That's what that test was all about. That was the first step to seeing exactly how well the cars would, would race. And there was something else. They are also testing the fan waters up there to see the response people would give NASCAR if they did come to Indianapolis. And then the test was mopped. I mean, there were there was huge crowds, not crowds that came to races, but plenty. Nobody in this kind of numbers ever came to a test. That place, was, nobody. Period. Came right. to tests. Yeah. And so this was absolutely a mob scene compared to what kinds of crowds tests used to call, uh, used to draw, if any. So you knew right away. Fan response was good. Track was good for the cars. Cars ran well on the track. And therefore, it was a logical move to, from there to figure out when they could put Indianapolis on the Winston Cup st- schedule. Steve, you were at that first Brickyard 400. What was the atmosphere like? I mean, it was electric. I want to tell you, the reporters, we all came to Indianapolis not knowing exactly what to expect. But we had never seen so many people gathered together to watch race. I mean, it's easily the most well-attended NASCAR race ever. And that's because there was a huge interest in NASCAR at the time. And, of course, Indianapolis folks had been coming to races for years, and they wanted to see this new guy on the lock. How badly did drivers want to win that first race? Because it was certainly a situation where they were going to go down in history. Yep, that's it. It was historic. Any driver that could win that first race was obviously going to be a part of NASCAR lore. And they all knew it. I mean, that's one of the reasons to me that uh, Dale Earnhardt was, I mean, he just clawed his way to be the first car on the track at that (laughs) test. Yeah. I mean, he just literally ran to his car, got into it, and told Childers he wanted to be the first one out there and just gunned his car all the way down pit road to be at the exit of pit road when they started their practice. Now, you take that and translate that into the race itself. Well, it's understandable where the guys are coming from. I mean, they knew they were a part of history just being there, but think how much more you would be a part of history if you won there. Jeff Gordon had already won his first race at Charlotte earlier in the 1994 season, and he goes into this race and he wins it. What do you think that did to seal his place as a NASCAR legend? A whole lot. Let me tell you something. The entire state of Indiana went nuts. So I think it did a tremendous amount for Jeff Gordon's career. And uh, like I said earlier, you got the first winner of the Indianapolis race, the Brickyard 400, is going to go down in history. And I don't think anybody's ever going to forget who that guy was. Well, now we can say forever that it was Jeff Gordon, and it was probably the greatest thing that could have ever happened to Indianapolis Motor Speedway and NASCAR at that time to have Jeff win that race because of the popularity of the victory and because of the massive news coverage it got. 
What do you think it did for Jeff in the eyes of his competitors? Because he had won at Daytona in his rookie year, one of the preseason races. He had won at Charlotte. But still, you know, he could have still been considered a flash in the pan, a phenom and that kind of thing. But when he won at Indy, I think it might just be possible that the other competitors set up, took notice and said, hey, this guy's the real deal. Yeah, I think many of them did, but... He was still called Wonder Boy, <laughs> even after, <laughs> yeah, even after the win in Indianapolis, and from most of the time that year. But it, they, they, it's, it did go a long way to convincing the drivers that it was much more than a phenom, as you say, that he was the real deal. However, Dale Earnhardt <laughs> never let up on him. He won the oh, absolutely he not. Won, no. He won the Brickyard Four Hundred the next year. And he said, I'm the first man to win. (laughs) (laughs) There was so much that took place in this race. And the thing, if they remember anything else about this race, other than the fact that Jeff Gordon won, I think they also kind of remember the incident between Jeff Bodine and his brother Brett. It's kind of a sad thing, but there was bad blood at that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, Brett went on to finish second. And Jeff, I think, was way back in the field. Uh, well, yeah, after getting spun. Well, yeah. <laughs> that does happen. But that didn't do a thing for uh, mending the fences between them. Now, I don't know the cause or anything of that nature, what what, what caused the rift between them. But, uh, you know, the Indianapolis matter certainly didn't help. And it got particularly strong notice because of who they were and the situation they were in. Any others who might have been involved would not have created nearly as much uh, attention as they got. So, you know, that had a lot to do with it. But eventually, eventually, the the two healed their wounds and got back together as brothers. But Indianapolis was not a good time for either one of them. Before the race, I think the big news was the fact that Rick Mast had won the poll for that race. Where did that come from, Steve? I think the situation was that uh, when the guys went to Indy, everything was new in preparation for the car. And so, in my opinion, uh, even after testing, where they found some uh, basis, some database to work from to get ready for the race itself, some guys hit upon the right combination. And, uh, and I think that Richard Jackson's team was one of them. And it was certainly proven when Rick won the pole. Now, that was also good for NASCAR and good for Indianapolis because that was something of a Cinderella story to get the week started. Had it been a Richard Petty or, well, he wasn't racing at the time, but it's somebody of the quality of the Richard Petty. So a Dale Earnhardt would not have drawn as much attention as Rick Mass did in terms of, you know, winning the pole and bringing attention to Indianapolis because one angle that a lot of the press wanted to attack was who the heck was Rick Mast? They wanted to tell the people about this guy who surprised everybody and win the poll. And Rick knew it because the first thing he said when he came into the interview room after he won the poll was, I'm just a poor old southern boy from the south. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound like Rick Mast at all. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Steve, Rick Mast is probably one of my favorite personalities in the sport. What makes him who he is? Because what you see is what you get. Yeah. Yeah. That Rick does not put on airs. He doesn't act as someone else he is. It's just who he is. And he's a very laid back, 
guy with a lot of common sense and the ability to carry on a great conversation at any time and who is a type of guy that if you are his friend, by golly, you stayed his friend. Yeah, and every time I saw Rick all these years, uh, I always started the conversation with, hey, Rick, tell us about the cow. <laughs> and anyway, <laughs> yeah, story, yeah. you know, sold the cow to get his first race car. From Rick Mast winning the poll to just an overwhelming number of cars that showed up to enter that race, 84 cars showed up to qualify for that race. There were guys that came up there to qualify for that race that we had not seen in years. They were guys that they didn't even show up to try to qualify for Winston Cup. Bob Brevac, Butch Gilliland, Delma Coward showed up and tried to Delma Coward. Delma Coward. Yeah, buddy. He was there. (laughs) Now, they had to know that they probably weren't going to make the race, but they just wanted to try. Because as we said earlier, they knew that if they could at least make the race, they were going to be part of history. So that's why they flocked up there. You mentioned the fact that Dell Earnhardt wanted to be the first car on the track during the first tire test. Do you remember who the first car was to make a qualifying lap? No, I don't. But we I'll can't hear you. you. We can't hear you shaking uh, your head. No. <laughs> next question. H. <laughs> B. Bailey. Oh my goodness! Now, how's that for a name that probably more than likely wasn't going to make the race, but? He's a part of history. That's right. It's surprising he's even up there. But that, like I said, they knew how important and how historical the race was. So you get guys that you normally would not see come up there and try to qualify and be a part of that history. And H.P. Bailey, by golly, was one of those guys. Most of this issue was devoted to coverage of the Indy race, but this was an issue that had 104 pages. And one of the few things in that issue that wasn't indie related was an absolutely fantastically, awesomely written I'm assuming story. you wrote it. Well, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> was a story that I wrote during my freelance days with Scene on Richard Childress's driving career. Going through the Scene Vault and going through the papers, I know that you had developed a pretty good relationship with Richard during those driving days. Yeah, absolutely. Richard was one of those independent drivers, they called them at the time. Those were drivers who did not get factory backing, and those were drivers who didn't get a whole lot of sponsorship. But they made it go, and Richard was one of the ones that made it go best. He was a consistently good, if not great, competitor as a driver. And I think the thing that marked Richard Childress was probably that fateful 1981 season when Dale Earnhardt reached the point where he could not would not drive for J.D. Stacy, who had purchased the, purchased the team from Rod Osterlin. Now, the way this thing, the wheel started turning when Dale wanted to leave, and they had to find some place for him to land. And I think that Wrangler, uh, and maybe even Dale, or representatives of Dale, came to Richard Childress uh, at midpoint of the year and said, look, if you'll give up your seat and turn your car over to Dale for the rest of the year, we'll see to it that you have the sponsorship money you need to get it done for the rest of the year. Richard agreed to get out of the driver's seat, and he did not drive for the rest of the season. Now, he could have gone back to racing in 1982, but he didn't. Uh, He rather took a chance to go out and see if he could do his own thing. Now, he told me, 
that when Dale left at the end of that year, he told Dale that he just didn't have all that Dale needed to win. He didn't have it yet, but someday he might. And so he set about trying to make his team even better and stronger so it would attract a decent driver and he could make go of it as a team owner. As it turned out, he got sponsorship from what was known then as Piedmont Airlines, later became U.S. Airways and then American. And they agreed to back him, and he got Ricky Rudd to drive the car for him. And Ricky won the first couple of races that Richard Schiller earned as a team owner. And after that particular time, the gamble paid off, and Richard stayed a team owner. Steve, it's another one of those fascinating what-if questions because at the time that Dale Earnhardt joined Richard Childress's team in 1981, Childress was basically one of a number of independent teams. You had Buddy Arrington, you had J.D. McDuffie, you had Elmo Langley, and several others. What do you think ultimately led Dale Earnhardt to Richard Childress as opposed to a Buddy Arrington or... Elmo Langley or whoever else? Well, if you ask me, I think it was two things. Number one, I, I think Richard and Dale got along well at that particular time. That's one thing. And I think Dale certainly knew him better than the others that you mentioned. And as such, he thought he could work with Richard and make this deal work for him. And the other thing is, and let's be honest, Richard, in my opinion, was being given more sponsorship money than he'd ever seen. And he said, okay, I'm going to try to make a go of this. I'll help out Dale, and I'll probably help out myself with this kind of sponsorship money. Turned out to be the right decision. Steve, the Scene Vault Twitter feed continues to be pretty popular with race fans. And I had to laugh because I got a couple of tweets in the last week or so that just really put this thing into perspective, what Winston Cup scene, Grand National scene meant to people. And here's a tweet that we got from Brandon Reed. His Twitter handle is Brandon underscore Reed 32. And he said, some of my fondest racing memories are wrapped in the pages of the Scene Vault. My late grandfather had a subscription for years, and we would pour over the pages each week in the days before we had cable television. It was part of my growing up with my best racing buddy. Thanks. That is a cool memory. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's nice to hear something like that. And I had to laugh at this one. This is probably one of my all-time favorite tweets about Winston Cup scene. Jim Tompkins, 559, said, I really missed that paper. One of my racing buddies at work called it the Hillbilly Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not sure about how fans feel about being called hillbillies, but that's not a bad analogy. Let's see. Hillbilly Sasquatch. Hillbilly (laughs) Sasquatch. (laughs) You're never going to let me forget that Sasquatch business, are you? No, sir, I am not. (laughs) Absolutely not. I was permanently scarred. But honestly, we have been very fortunate in getting the ratings that we have on iTunes. We're now up to about 27, 28 written reviews. And once we get to 50, one of those reviewers will get a copy of every NASCAR book that I've ever written. And on Patreon, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast on PayPal. The address is paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. So folks, Seriously, any little bit that you can do to help support the production of this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate. So as always, I'd like to thank Steve. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you, Sasquatch. (laughs) 
I'm going to let that one slide, Steve. <laughs> just this once. Just this once. I'm going to let it slide. Okay. I'd also like to thank Peter Salino and the team at Centire Media and my best friend Joe for providing the theme music to this episode. Steve, call us out. Uh, I will do that. And please, tune in next time for the Scene Vault podcast. I think you'll really enjoy it. And Big Ben, enjoy your book. <laughs>